Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Come visit us sometime at connorsforum.org. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on today's episode. If you haven't already, I hope you'll consider hitting the subscribe button in the show description. It takes like 15 seconds or less. It's quick. Most importantly, it's free. And you get all Utterly Moderate podcasts and Connors articles sent directly to you. And you become a part of our growing community of Americans ready to leave all this bitterness and polarization behind. All right, well, on today's episode, we welcome University of Baltimore law professor Kim Whaley back to the show to discuss her newest book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. You can find this book anywhere where you buy books, Amazon, anywhere else. This should be a great conversation. Kim Whaley... Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. So we love having you on the show, but this appearance is particularly special because you have a new book, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas, released earlier this year from HarperCollins. You can get that anywhere that you buy books. And so give us a summary. What's the overarching argument of this new exciting book? The overarching argument is that when it comes to complicated thorny decisions, reactivity isn't the best way to get to the best resolution. And lawyers, law students spend a lot of time and effort and money, frankly, learning how to break problems down, how to get good information, how to look at both sides of the coin, how to weigh your value system, how to understand that compromise is part of the deal. So it's it's an gives a five-part framework that brings the elite law school education into everyday homes. That's the the really pragmatic uh, objective of the book is a self-help guide, but one that takes lawyering skills and applies it to everyday life. So, and we're going to get to the, is it, is it the bycat method? Is that right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get to that in a moment. We'll, we'll talk all about the book and, and go through some of the big themes of the book, but um but first, can you tell us what motivated you to write this book? You've written a number of books, and they've been on a variety of topics in the Constitution and other legal matters. So why this particular subject? Well, you're getting into sort of the other reason, the sort of deeper theme behind the book, which I know is near and dear to your heart and your professional life. And that has to do with our polarized, um, broken democracy. And the first book, as you mentioned, was on the Constitution. It's all, all these books are about sort of breaking down these concepts for regular people that are not lawyers so they can apply them and not just be taught and told how to think, but how to, what to think, or not told what to think, but how to think about these things. The second was on voting because after writing the first book, I realized our constitutional system really comes down to the ballot box. And that's why there's so much fighting over it because politicians understand how valuable the vote is, but only about 50% of the people vote. And then, you know, after the January 6th insurrection, even before that, the lead up to the 2020 election, when, you know, the, the, I think misinformation was around, oh, 
you know, our electoral system is is not to be trusted. Um, I realize that the problems in our democracy is a little bit deeper, that we are very into team-oriented thinking. I'm right, you're wrong, um, black and white, polarized thinking. And that's a very that's a different way of approaching problems than lawyers uh, approach problems. You know, to to say I'm on this team, I'm going to defend the team. Identifying arguments is really different from making arguments, right? So if you're on a team, you can make an argument to support your position, but identifying the arguments on the other side, that's a very, very different way of approaching things. You have to be curious. You have to be open-minded. You have to be tolerant. And so the book is kind of ironically, because people think of lawyers as fighters and sometimes difficult and, and problematic, but really the the legal method forces people to learn how to consider the best arguments that you don't agree with. Uh, and so honestly, my bigger project is to try to to shift the way we approach some of these polarizing issues that we we identify our common humanity and our common sense and not so much get dug into the trenches. I mean, you've absolutely identified that my biggest concern, I mean, I care about climate change. I care about all these inequalities that we talk about. Uh, but if there's one overriding fear of mine, it's the damage that this post-truth moment, post-truth trends are having on American society. And I'm going to ask you a two-part question. I really want to get to the, back to the specifics of the book, but since you talk about the motivation and, and how it's connected to this post-truth problem, I guess the first part of the question would be, how concerned are you about the directions of these post-truth trends? But then secondly, I've noticed something increasingly uh, in my personal life and talking to people on my social network about this problem is that the concern about post-truth, the concern about you know, um, lack of faith in democracy and facts and expertise and all that kind of stuff is increasingly being treated by a segment of my social network as a liberal concern. And so people are just tuning out when they hear it. So I guess my first question is how concerned are you about post-truth trends, but also is the segment of the population, the most ideological people left and right, hearing this message? Are they going to hear this message? Yeah, well, two things. One is you know, my, the point of the book is to dislodge black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to your second question is why are people seeing that as a liberal cause and therefore writing it off is because they're, they're entrenched in black and white thinking. <laughs> I mean, so if, so if that's a blue cause, I'm out rather than get curious about um, what, what that speaker is considering. I mean, think about it from the lawyer's perspective, a lawyer has to imagine uh, the best possible lawyer on the other side and make the arguments that lawyer is going to make. Imagine if, if when you're talking to your friends, the default mechanism was to imagine you're a good person um, and what could a good person argue uh, on the other side, right? I mean, really different approach. I'm, I'm not going to write you off as on the wrong team or a bad person, right? A Pew research study in 2019 found that approximately 50% of Democrats and 55% of Republicans when asked said that people from the other political party were quote, more immoral than regular people, more immoral 
Um, so, so I, I, you know, I think it gets back to what I'm trying to do in the book is to get, give people an alternative approach because no one likes to be polarized from each other. I mean, as you're talking about your friends and your family, we're, we're, our brains are wired for connection, right? Not, not for isolation. That's number one. I mean, back to your other, your first question. Yes, I'm very concerned. I think that we are on the in the twilight of a democracy. Uh, you know, I, I'm more and more concerned. Um, the doors are closing on it, and it's not just a liberal problem. Um, we're seeing it. I think the universe is showing us uh, what it looks like for a fledgling democracy to fail. Of course, Ukraine hasn't been isn't a robust democracy like America, um, American democracy. It hasn't survived for 245 years. However, we're seeing what happens when single party authoritarian rule decides I'm the boss. And it's, it's pretty ugly. A lot of innocent people are, are being murdered, and uh, including children. And the Russians continue to gaslight and lie about it, this post-true concept. For America, it's happening from the inside out. Um, the sort of the dark forces are corroding America from the inside out. And, you know, we can go on and on at length as to why, you know, I think we're one or two election cycles away from the end. Uh, and that scares people. I don't want people to run away from this gloom and doom message. People want to know, what do you do? And I think the way, to, the, the way forward is person by person to just start to try to build bridges um, with our former friends who now we might consider an enemies because they don't agree with us. Um, you know, it's a different mindset. You know, come to the conversation curious understanding they're a good person and hearing them out and try to change your mind. Um, I, I really think, Lawrence, that that is, you know, the, the, the sort of arc of my books. I think that is the way forward, reminding people of our shared humanity. Um, I think I think that's, you know, a slower drip, but really it has to come from the populace uh, upwards. It can't come from the Supreme Court. It can't come from President Biden. It can't come from a political party. It's got to start in the hearts and minds of, of human beings. And that's where we've lost our way, I think. I could talk to you about this topic forever, but let's get back to the book. So, um, okay. So, uh, you argue very early on in the book that lawyers think differently from uh, average people when you talk about nitpicking, you know, restaurant menus and those sorts <laughs> yeah. of things. So, you know, in, in a, give us a brief summary. What's different about the lawyerly mind compared to the average citizen? Well, and I, I see this year in year in year out with my students. Um, the average citizen, uh, especially in our educational system, people have gone through it, um, look for answers. They pose a problem, they want to know the answer. They look for the answer and then look to justify reasons for the answer. I mean, our students come into law school with this, you know, it might be a history major and you you learn about the Civil War and you write a paper justifying your conclusions about the Civil War. Lawyers look for questions. Uh, unless you're, you know, a legislator on the Supreme Court, the, you know, or even a judge, maybe the answers, I mean, lower court judges get reversed. The answers, the juice is not in the answers. The juice is in the questions. And it takes a really long time for law students to understand this. I mean, I think one thing that resonates with them is that the way lawyers make money is finding the questions. Um, if it could Wikipedia the answer, no one's going to pay a lawyer. Lawyers look for the questions. And that's a very different mindset. And I learned this. Uh, during the first uh, Trump impeachment, I was on CBS as a legal commentator, and I was teaching a course called Democracy at Risk uh, um, at American University, Washington College of Law. 
And, you know, it was, it was a fraught moment. Um, people were, were, I think, afraid to speak in class. And I, I assigned the task before we read the Supreme Court cases and discussed them, students had to come to class with two opinion pieces on each topic. And we talked about how to get good information. You mentioned that post-truth world and we get a lot of garbage in our phones and there's a lot of misinformation out there. So we did figure out kind of how do you sort for reliable points of view? And it really changed their thinking. At the end of the semester, they said two things. One, it's the first place in my educational history that I felt safe talking about hard stuff. First time. These are second and third year law students. The second, they said, is that they came to class kind of curious about other points of view and not ready to defend their side. Very, very different mindset. And so I think it's ironic that it, you know, from my perspective, it's, you know, lawyers are perceived of as fighters. As I said, they're perceived as of advocates and sometimes unethical and there can be unethical lawyers. When you see lawyers on television arguing their side, what did they, what you don't, excuse me, what you don't see are the weeks, months, sometimes years of spade work gathering the facts, marshalling the arguments, uh, deciding which are the good arguments, which are the arguments you're going to lose, figuring out how to verify and uh, from an evidentiary standpoint and validate your facts so they can get to the decision maker. All of that happens beforehand. And again, it's, um, it's just, you know, in law, it's how you win a case. You can't win a case by winging it. You can't win a case by only seeing one side of things. You'll lose if you don't see where how the potholes are. And what I suggest in the book is, it's a good way to make hard decisions in your life. Um, we walk through in the book, as you know, we walk through, you know, um, family law decisions. I personally went through a really bad divorce with four daughters and talk about that. And, you know, when you have a big thing that is feel, feels overwhelming in your life, the five steps that I outline can help you bring some order to that chaos. It talks about work-life decisions. It talks about medical decisions. So, so the idea is um, to bring... Some tools in the toolbox, as I, we had talked about at the top of the show, for um, for reg everyday decisions, but also hopefully to give people a way to to have a conversation across the Thanksgiving table with someone that you care about and you want to make connection with. You don't want to. You don't want more division. Nobody likes that. It just feels yucky. Yeah, your point about uh, having your students read opinion pieces across the political spectrum. Um, I do that cons constantly and my students, I think my students look at me and they think that I'm lying to them or that I'm just paying lip service to the other side. It really is true. You're going to find some large percentage of what the other side's saying that you agree with, right? And so, and you're, and what ends up happening with me is not that all of a sudden I adopt their side. Or I reject my side. It's my side becomes much more nuanced. Exactly. Right. I mean, these are hard, complex problems. They're right. not black and white. They're shades of gray. Right. Absolutely. And we're, you know, the, like I call it the dark forces. I don't want to seem all, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi about it, but it's true. Um, you know, and that, and I say, you know, it's really, it's, it's the political um, elite and the establishment, it's dark money, it's corporate America, whatever you want to say. The framers of the constitution understood something about human psychology. The Constitution is really more about psychology than it is about law. And what they understood is that um, it's human nature to amass, entrench, and ultimately to abuse their power, people's power. That's just how our brains are wired. And so you have to have a system that pushes back on those worst instincts. It's not unique to Democrats. It's not unique to Republicans. And, uh, you know, I don't know how to capture 
to your earlier point with your friends that think it's a liberal, uh, a liberal worry to, to be concerned about this. I don't know how to capture people's common sense around this. So as I, the, the book is in a, you know, again, I'm shifting gears and just trying to empower people. Let's talk about your method. Uh, oh, and by the way, you've given me a new, uh, nickname for you. So folks, uh, with us on the program right now is Obi-Wan Kim Whaley. That's your new, <laughs> that's that's like, your new I guess it has a ring to it. It's got some W's. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so in the book, you lay out your method, the BICAT method, B-I-C-A-T. So tell us about this method and, and why it's important and useful. Okay. So, um, B is break down big issues into smaller pieces. So say it's, you know, should you get your kid vaccinated um, if it's a precondition to going to to, to uh, school, you know, a year ago, or whatever. Um, I mean, politically, someone would say, no, that's terrible. How could the school make it happen? Or how could you not do that? Because, you know, you have to, you have to support public health, whatever. That's actually a much more nuanced question. You've got the health of your child. You've got public health. You've got the, um, sort of educational needs of your child, your child might do better in in a classroom environment than on Zoom. Um, you might also have your sort of political ideological beliefs about the role of government one way or the other. Those are all sub-issues and they're competing. If you go with one as a priority, you're going to have to give up some other stuff. That's B, break it down. Um, I is to identify your values and your aims. Really important step. I think people don't understand law is all about some value system, right? It's against it. We have a, a law punishing people for homicide because we value life. I mean, it's as basic as it is. We don't have to have that rule. Um, so identify your values for yourself, right? So what is it? Is it education for your kids, for example? Maybe that's a value and then you can prioritize that. That'll help you decide um, what to do about whether to vaccinate your kids so they can go to school. Um, C is collect lots of knowledge. And I use the word knowledge um, carefully. That means validating facts. And I talk in the book about how to get good information in our digital age. I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was about how to find information, period. You had to go to the card catalog. You had to get a microfiche. You had to do all this stuff. Now it's sorting and it's a new skill. And we need to learn that skill and we need to teach it to our, our children. Um, a is then analyze both sides. We've already covered that. Um that you got to turn over the coin. And T is to tolerate that you won't get everything you want. Lawyers oftentimes have to give bad information, bad news to, or it's in the information, but bad news to their client. Listen, I know you feel that you should get the house in the divorce, but you're not going to get it. A judge is going to force a sale of it and split the proceeds 50%. That's what happens in our state. I'm just making this up, right? So in your own life too, um, if we get out of black and white thinking, out of win-lose thinking, and you approach these problems understanding that you have to tolerate giving some stuff up, you'll be able to live with them a little better. B, break it down. I, identify values and aims. C, collect lots of knowledge. A, analyze both sides of the issue. And T, tolerate that you might not get everything you want and others might disagree with you. And that's just okay. That's okay. Yeah. In the book, uh, Kim goes through you know using this method in your family life and work and your civic life healthcare decisions and hiring a lawyer yourself. And we'll try to get to as much of that as we can before we leave her. But something else that I thought was interesting that I wanted to bring up was um, one of the many virtues of this book is that uh, in each of the chapters, I believe, 
I didn't count them, but I think in each of the chapters, you you pick out a, a case, a historical case that most law students have to read and and you go through it and you talk about why it's important and what it exemplifies, what it illustrates. So is there one that sticks out that our listeners might think is kind of interesting and in, in, in terms of what it demonstrates? Gosh, you know, I don't know how people feel about interesting cases <laughs> or not cases, <laughs> cases that aren't interesting in law school. But yeah, the point of the the point of introducing each step in BICAT with a law school case is to make the case to the readers that this is how lawyers lawyers think. This is how lawyers break um, issues down and how they analyze both sides. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to think which of the cases I like the most. I mean, we start with uh, every law student reads a case called Panoya versus Neff, and it's a terrific uh, sort of history lesson. Who knew that, you know, many years ago when the West was being uh, populated, the federal government was giving away tracts of land. And so um, a fellow went out, um, claimed his tract of land, but the pat the the actual um, deed for the land didn't show up in time. And there was a dispute as to who owned the land. It's a very complicated story um, that is overwhelming for law students. But if you break it down into the two different cases, um, uh, that basically are embedded into that case, you know, you can see how something very complicated can become easier if you break it down. And I, I did a panel recently with a former student who's now a practicing lawyer on my book. And she said that that was the number one thing that she took out of law school classes with me was to break something down into smaller issues, um, to not approach big, heavy problems as a giant, massive you know, multi-headed monster that you break it down into smaller pieces and then deal with each piece at a time and put it back together. So, so I would say, I mean, um, you know, I explain it much better in the book, but Panoyer would be, be the one that comes to mind in part because uh, what I said, one of my former students said of all five steps in BICAT, that was the one that she thinks was most helpful uh, for becoming an effective lawyer. That's a nice thing to hear that someone remembered that all those years <laughs> later. Um, so uh, there, there's a number of uh, areas, arenas in people's lives that you talk about this method being useful. Um, but one that I think is maybe interesting to listeners is in hiring a lawyer. So, you know, when someone's going to hire a lawyer for, you mentioned divorce or, you know, for uh, settling in a state or whatever it is that you're hiring a lawyer for, what are some of the things that your book helps us think about that we should be considering. Well, you mentioned, you know, a divorce and that's kind of top of the mind with these kinds of things. I think it's like uh, the second, the second prong really of the bycat is the most important there. That is identify what your values are and your aim. Um, you know, some, some people approach a divorce and they want what they're owed. And that's one kind of a lawyer, um, a lawyer that's going to do a scorched earth. Um, you know, you have unlimited funds to pay bills and legal fees, and you just want to get what you feel is your fair due. But if you also identify, you know, the stress that's going to come with that, if you have children, the pressure that's going to come with that, you might have a value in some level of efficiency to move towards a compromise. That's a different kind of lawyer. Uh, so, um, you know, it walks through in the book, you know, certainly if you're, you're, you're charged with some kind of crime, you need to get a lawyer, um, some complex commercial transactions, you know, lawyers, are trained to look for the potholes, to look for the pitfalls. Um, but what I suggest in the book, Lawrence, is that even with BICAT, 
say you want to get a divorce, say you you want to start your own business and you need to do some some threshold uh, paperwork to do that. If you go through your bycat method on your own around these issues and then sit down with your lawyer, you'll save some legal fees because <laughs> you will have already thought through a lot of the issues that a good lawyer will walk you through and you'll know what questions to ask your lawyer because you do have to be a consumer with lawyers. Lawyers don't understand um, fully where you're coming from and what matters to you. So the bycat method is there not just to help you decide or the book, I should say, kind of gives signals when you should hire a lawyer. But when you do hire a lawyer, how do you minimize your legal fees by having thought through these the, the critical issues before you sit down and you're on the clock for hundreds of dollars an hour? Well, and I got to say, uh, and and you kind of, in, in the way you're talking and the way you talk about the panel with your former student and, and thinking about your book, uh, it, it comes through very clearly in your book that you really enjoy teaching law school. So, um, and speaking of that, I should ask you, um, I have lots of students who come to me and want to go to law school and I have zero expertise <laughs> in that area. And so what are some good reasons? This is for people who are listening, who are considering this. What are some good reasons to go to law school and what are bad reasons to go to law school? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of opportunity costs. Well, you know, it, it is a, it is potentially a lot of money. Uh, you know, the, to, to make a lot of money in a big law firm, you have to either go to a top 25 school um, on the U S news and world reports and kind of be in, you know, the top third of the class, or you have to be in the very tippity top, of one of the other schools. It's a very, um, still it's a very hierarchical profession and those credentials still matter. Uh, so, so, you know, if I, I, you know, Baltimore is, hasn't broken the hun top hundred in, in several years, but the top students at Baltimore could do well at any law school in the country. And many of them have excellent scholarships. So, it, you know, if it's a financial concern, um, then, then, uh, then that, of course, would justify um, not being a top-tier school. But I hate to say it, but the top-tier schools are the ones that are going to lead you into law firms. Law firm life is not so great, though. I mean, there are a lot of really unhappy lawyers. Um, you know, I've been in government and out of government. And in, when you're in government and you're a lawyer in government, you're making policy decisions. You're exercising discretion. You're deciding what's best for the public. It's a very empowering and, and humbling position. Um, private practice, you can have really interesting problems. You can talk to, um, to work with really smart lawyers, um, but oftentimes you're you're moving money around. And I think at the end of the day, um, that that can be for certain people not necessarily the most motivating. I would say a great reason to go to law school is 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 what the books are about. Is it does make you think better. It makes you smarter, not in terms of your cognitive capacity, but your ability to tackle difficult problems. Um, and I also say, you know, lawyers are ultimately the, they are the agents of social change. So, you know, um, of course, people are as well. But if you want to, you know, if you want to change the way society works, oftentimes it happens through lawsuits in the courts, or it happens through changing laws. So you can, you can, if you want to make an impact in the world, through a law degree, you certainly have to resist maybe the temptation to go on the, you know, the partnership law firm track. I mean, some of these people make millions of dollars an hour a year, um, and that's a trap in itself because, 
you know, more money doesn't make you happier unless you're living below the poverty line. That's been proven. Um, but you can use a law degree to and a, and the legal mind that comes from it to to make you know small and large impacts in the world. So I think those are you know both good and bad reasons to go to law school. I wouldn't just go to law school to make a lot of money. I but that that kind of gets to. Um, that just gets to more life advice, which I'm happy to give out as well to both my students. <laughs> and, my, and because I've been, you know, raising four daughters, I do that a lot just by by virtue of who I am. <laughs> so earlier in the interview, you mentioned voting and you mentioned voting being so important. And you also mentioned historically, the U.S. has had low voter turnout. And so are there any things you could suggest that we could change about the American system to goose voting? Like, what are some ways that we could change this dynamic? First of all, and this would be it's a practical impossibility. People ask me what should be the number one change to the U.S. Constitution if it could be amended, and it would be in my mind to include an affirmative right to vote for all citizens. I think that shocks people that it's not in there. And if it were in there, it would be much harder for states to be cute and just put up these silly, um, senseless barriers to voting that are really just about suppressing the vote. So, so that's number one. Number two, and I've tried to sort of you know, encourage people who have connections to, I should say, to corporate money and influencers. I think we need to brand democracy. Young people think their vote doesn't really matter. They understand gerrymandering. Uh, they feel like, what's the point? It's only for old people. Uh, you know, I should, uh, if we're going to have a change, it has to be a massive structural change, throw out the baby with the bathwater, all of that stuff. Uh, you know, TikTok is, is an incredible, you know, mechanism for for learning, for mislearning, uh, but certainly, you know, um, that's where a lot of our youth get their information. And I think if voting and democracy were branded like, you know, the Nike swoosh, um, there could be a huge change in people's approach to voting. I also think, of course, it could be, um, you know, Congress could do easy things like make it a federal holiday, um, you know, automatic voter registration when, you know, you have a baby and you get the social security card in the mail. So comes the voting registration card. Unfortunately, frankly, um, the Biden administration used its initial political capital on a failed, the failed build back better infrastructure bill when they really should have gone for voting. And the, the windows are closing between now and November for that. And it's, it's really a tragically missed opportunity, but, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm not throwing in the towel on American democracy yet. I, I think the better angels are are, are behind us. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have an easy answer to how to capture people's imagination, but it's going to be bad if if we lose a meaningful right to choose our elected leaders at the ballot box. So anyway, anyone's listening to this podcast and any of this makes sense to you. Um, if you think I'm, I, you know, I make no sense. I encourage you read some of my many, many, many articles and inform yourself. Um, and then be, use your critical thinking skills. But if, if any of it makes sense, tell one person, tell one person um, to to get registered, to get educated, to spread the message that our democracy is really worth saving. It's not a Democrat cause. It's an everybody cause. And please, please, please fix the Electoral Count Act. Okay. So uh, I, I have to ask you this question. My production assistant, Allison Ritchie, uh, will certainly kill me if I don't. Um, is there anything that we can do? I understand the first amendment. I understand the ethic of it, but also the, the constitutional aspect of it. Is there anything we can do to regulate 
media in terms of misinformation and disinformation, whether it's adding nutrition labels like the TVMA for, you know, the ratings on TV, we could add nutrition labels for media. Um, but is there anything we can do when, you know, Tucker Carlson comes out and says there's black helicopters putting people in Gitmo because they're Republicans. Is there a way for us to, to stop that kind of stuff from happening? Legally? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, there was something called the fairness doctrine that was that required if you want a license to to air information um, on on TV or radio, you had to give both sides of the argument. And that was that was allowed to sunset in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. Um, we know you can't hear curse words on national television. That's because it's regulated. The First Amendment is not unlimited. You, you know, I mean, you know, child sex abuse imagery, we heard this ad nauseum with uh, um, now soon to be Justice Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings. That's illegal. Um, you could say that that's my First Amendment right to, 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 to possess that and government can't limit it. So, of course, government could restrict or put some boundaries, additional boundaries on on cable news information. Also, the problem is, is that when the Internet first and Twitter and all that first came on board, the social media outlets um, in the Federal Communications Act, the, basically Congress assumed, you know, if you're Google or you're Facebook, you're like a bulletin board at the local, you know, sort of community center. So the bulletin board doesn't decide what goes on the bulletin board, right? People walk by and stick stuff on the bulletin board. The bulletin board has no control. That's the approach that the government and the law took to these social media platforms. As a result, um, there's no liability for misinformation. It's all self-policing. But of course, that is in practice. That's not how these things operate. They use algorithms and they're very, very careful about and very thoughtful about who gets what information. Um, all of this really comes back to the United States Congress. Uh, Congress is to blame for a lot of the problems uh, in 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 America, in part because they're just not doing anything. Now, Democrats will say, we have Kristen Sinema, we have Joe Manchin, they won't get rid of the filibuster, Dem Republicans won't, you know, won't do it, give any win to a Democrat, so the filibuster will kill any substantive legislation. That is, the filibuster requires a supermajority to get legislation passed rather than a bare majority. A filibuster is a, it's a fiction. It's not in the Constitution. It's made up. It's a procedural rule. True. All true. So this gets back, Lawrence, to the book. <laughs> we have to go back to our common sense and uh, elect politicians that are willing to reach across the aisle and actually do their jobs for Americans. I mean, that's a tall order because, as you suggest, people are getting bad information, so it's very circular. Uh, I think I think we have to tap into our common sense and stop voting red versus blue and start voting voting the way we would choose a babysitter or a teacher or a doctor. Use those kinds of criteria. I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, there's so many layers to the problems. But to answer your question, yes, of course, Congress could regulate it. And it just won't. And that's unfortunate. Well, the book, it's a great book. It's called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, A Common Sense Guide to Everyday Dilemmas. You can find it. It's from HarperCollins, but you can find it anywhere that you buy books. 
Kim Whaley, thank you so much for stopping by again. Oh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, as most of our listeners probably know, I work at Shippensburg University. I'm a faculty member here. And this is an absolutely wonderful university. We've got great administrators, great faculty members, and especially great students. Two great students, Madison Lockman and Allison Ritchie, are actually production assistants on this podcast. And another great student of mine, Piper Cole, uh, goes to Shippensburg University, and her music is going to play us out today. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.